added stuff to this, and so I just took a, I just decided to print the whole thing out, which really puts me at a disadvantage because uh, you see everything I, I say, so I can't say anything like pithy or clever, you know, that you would be like, ooh, that's cool, and uh, no, I'm just kidding, but so you, you, you literally have my notes, <laughs> except uh, at the very bottom, but um, I wanted to just, my, my, I got sick last week, and I was out, I was out, I was out of work, I was out everything, I, I was uh, pretty much locked up in my room, and, or on the couch there, and uh, I wasn't able to be here, but my intention, or my hope was, that I would be able to kind of go through and do a survey of Jude, and uh, let us kind of understand the, the epistle as a whole. Um, who it is, who is Jude, how it came to us, um, how it just really clawed, you know, its way into our canon, and, you know, it came to us with blood, sweat, and tears, that kind of thing, um, and, and rightly so. Um, and then, then in, uh, uh, on Sunday, you know, bring to the dynamic doxology, and uh, that was kind of my intention. However, much like Jude's intention, he wanted to do something, and had to do something else, uh, so I too <laughs> wanted to do something, and I ended up doing this at the end, so that's what we're going to do, and <clears throat> I want to begin by telling you what the purpose is, and this is, this is not, uh, this is going to feel a little bit more academic, um, just because of the nature of some of the things that we're covering, um, and so don't, don't, uh, don't get lost in that, um, because where we're going, and I want to be clear here, is with the purpose to give insights and appreciation really on how this letter came to be in our canon. Uh, that's my first thing. Second is to really strengthen our desire um, for a deeper study into the epistle. So I'm hoping that you will walk away um, with, you know, really the head knowledge and heart knowledge, but the head knowledge of how this epistle came here. It didn't just like fall into our canon, into our Bible, and onto our shelf. It, it, had, it had a journey, and this one particular had a long journey. But it came to us. And then appreciate, appreciate God's preservation of this letter, of this epistle. And, and to not shy away from it or to not buy into the fact that, well, I, I heard an overview of Jude. I know everything there is to know. But to dive in and study and, uh, and love this epistle. And then lastly, and probably most, really most importantly, I would just encourage you um, to personally contend for the faith. And that's the purpose of Jude, that you would contend for the faith with great earnestness. And so that's really, I'm modeling that from Jude to you, that I really hope by looking at this that you would understand and love uh, Jude. So I'm going to open up my Bible here. I hope you got your Bibles open um, to Jude as we're going to venture into this. It's... Uh, Jude chapter, Jude. I've been telling that joke for years, guys. Never gets old. All right. So, uh, so who is Jude? Let's start there. Who is Jude? Well, the name Jude has a lot of history in and of itself. And just kind of walk you through. The English form uh, is Judas, um, which is really the Greek form of Judah. Uh, during the first century, uh, it was a very popular name, only because not only because of his origin and, of course, Judah, but because of a national hero uh, who was of the Jews named Judas of what? Maccabees. That's right. That's right. Um, he was the Judas who led a, 
um, led a revolt against Antiochus of Epiphanes and in the 2nd century B.C. As it said that this epistle is coined, um, Jude, and you probably can guess because of the horrible connotation that Judas has um, at this point and really from here on out. I mean, when you hear Judas, we typically think of one individual in all of history, uh, the betrayer of Jesus. We know who this Jude is that wrote this epistle, mostly by deductive reasoning, mostly. Um, There are eight possibilities of authorship, and out of those eight, there's only really three viable candidates, three that were able to write scripture and that were able to really kind of put forth the, the knowledge and the, uh, the teaching and with the experience and the, um, the popularity amongst the church to, to kind of author this. The first is the Apostle Jude, uh, the Apostle Judas, the son of the Apostle James. And you can see that in Luke 6, 16, uh, where he's mentioned. But if this was the case, he would have said so. Much like all the other apostles, he would have said, you know, I, Judas, apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Much like all the other uh, epistle, uh, you know, other authors, and there would be no reason really to do this. Um, but he didn't. And so instead, he distinguishes himself from them. The second is Judas, who has served the early church in Jerusalem. Brian, can I get some water? Thank you. I'm sorry. Um, The second is Judas, who served the early church in Jerusalem. Now, this is um, Judas who was sent uh, to Antioch uh, with Paul and Barnabas. And Silas, you can read that about that in Acts 15, 22. Um, There was, you know, a lot happening there. His surname was uh, Barsabas, and Barsabas was kin to... uh, He was kin to... um, my spot here. Uh, he was kin to Joseph, um, and so this is this is probably his brother, and he was one. And his brother uh, Joseph was uh, one of the two disciples that were nominated to place Judas Iscariot. And you remember they had these guys, and they cast lot, and at the end it fell to uh, uh, Matthias, and so he uh, he ended up being the twelfth disciple. Given this information, he would have been known in the church both to the leaders and to the laymen alike. But however, there's very little evidence to actually support him from authoring this epistle. And historically, the church, church leaders, never promoted him, never suggested that he was the author of this epistle. Which leads us to our last possibility. And that is, um, that is Judas... Uh, who is the brother of James, and the key is the link between Jude and James. So the only man that could be recognized is simply James, as we read. He says, Jude, uh, chapter 1, I mean, excuse me, verse 1, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. No explanation is given. No, just simply the brother of James. Well, to a Jewish audience in that day, in that time, when they read this, what they're understanding is he is speaking of one individual who would be simply known as James. And that was James, half-brother of Jesus. And he was also the brother of Jude. Uh, You see that Matthew 13, 
55. James was extremely well known um, as the leader in, in the church in Jerusalem. In fact, Paul calls him uh, James the Lord's brother in Galatians chapter 1. We, we read that a couple, a couple of weeks ago um, as he was going over it in Galatians. In the early, uh, in addition, the early church fathers never debated the authorship of this epistle um, to the tune that they debated its content. Uh, there was some debate on whether he was actually the author or not, but it was because of the content that they debated. Really, the hot debate was never around did he actually pin this epistle. And so we see with that, and of course, some promotion of him as the author throughout history, we see by deductive reasoning that this is, in fact, the brother of Jesus. And the humility of not calling himself an apostle gives further credence to this. The fact that nor he or James, um, you know, they promote themselves, but really simply take a very humble approach as they, uh, as they write this epistle. And so Jude um, begins his letter. We see the brother of James. And who is he writing to? Oh, did you read that somewhere? Yes. Whom is, Jude, uh, whom is Jude writing? He's writing to Jewish Christians. He is writing to Jewish Christians. And it may, be, it may have been that Jude worked alongside of his brother, uh, James. Um, another reason why he simply stated the brother of James. Um, maybe that he would have shared ministry in Jerusalem. And there's, there's great evidence for that, in fact. Um, we know and we believe strongly that he was an itinerant preacher. Uh, bringing alongside uh, his believing wife. You read about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. Um, but the strongest evidence for a converted Jewish audience is simply the internal evidence of the epistle itself. Looking at the, these 25 verses, looking at what's said, um, and not even all 25, I mean, but, you know, looking at this, the whole of the epistle, it is an extremely Jewish epistle massively Jewish. Um, he gives crazy, um, crazy strong evidence, um, drawing from Jewish culture, um, Old Testament examples, judgments, citing events that would have been, would have been, I mean, on the forehead of Jewish readers. I mean, they, they would have known. It would be like saying, uh, it, it would be like in the South, and we use some kind of idiom about grits or you know or bacon you know what I mean well that may not make sense in Africa you know may not make sense in New Zealand or Iceland but down here in Mississippi we all know what that is you know what I mean when we use this kind of verbiage um, it's a very you know and he does that he uses extremely Jewish uh, verbiage um, Jews epistle was probably not one for one church individually in fact we, we were pretty we're pretty clear it wasn't it was probably for um, many churches or even a region, like uh, we would say, we would say not just here at uh, uh, Church of the Square, but for all the Gaucher, um churches, or if you wanted to say all the all the Gulf Coast churches from from uh, you know from uh, what's in uh, Bucks? No, Ocean Springs to Pascagoula. My my geography just flew out of my mind. I'm like, where am I at? <laughs> so all the regions, all the churches here, and all the way up as far as Van Cleve, 
you know, here we are, these letters would circulate. That's kind of what we're looking at here. We're looking at a lot of churches that would read this letter. So let's, uh, let, let's start unpacking some of this. What is his purpose? What's the theme? What's the structure? And I meant to add the date, but the date as well. And so as we're looking at this, let's first understand what his purpose is. Jude's purpose <clears throat> was to write about the common salvation. Uh, look at this. He says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, um, there's a lot of theology happening in that one verse. It really is. I don't know if you, um, I hope you unpack it a, later in some study. But then it goes on and it says, uh, verse 2, May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, I'm aware I'm using the New American Standard Version and that we mostly use the ESV version, so there may be a few differences in words there. Um, but I trust that we're communicating the same thing. He intended to write about our common salvation with blessedness, with joy, um, with encouragement. But things took a, a turn, so much so that the, the work he had planned and all of his hopes and dreams got curbed. And here now Jude is faced with a pastoral dilemma. He loves these people and he loves these churches and something terrible has befallen upon them. People have crept in unnoticed, are swaying these people away from the gospel, away from the purity of Christ and the personal work of Christ. And due to this, he now feels and has a sense by the Holy Spirit, needs to take some action and write a letter course-correcting some of this thinking, course-correcting this. And so although he intended to make every effort to write about the common salvation and all of its blessedness, he now felt necessity to write appealing that they contend earnestly for the faith. And I would just add on that note, this is not just a blanket statement of purpose. This is, this is a motto. This is a mantra. Uh, this is a banner that you and I are to wave that marks out our life. You and I are to contend earnestly for, for things that really matter. Uh, you know, I'm not talking about the color of carpet, you know, or the color of the concrete, you know. I'm not talking about, you know, paint on the walls or fixtures or, or I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. I'm talking about Jesus Christ, the living God, who is God, who is man. I, I'm talking about the purity of salvation and all of its, all of its tenets, the resurrection, the, the virgin birth, uh, the, the authority of Scripture. Um, Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and no man shall come to the Father except through Him. These are the hallmarks of, let's just say, Orthodox Christian faith. I mean, these are the fundamental things. Beyond that, the Scripture teaches far more, but fundamental. And we are to contend earnestly with these things. I mean, I, I would venture to say that if someone was to argue with you and Jesus is the brother of Satan, or if he was just a prophet and a good man and he really wasn't God, man, you need to know your stuff. You need to be a, a man or woman who is of such integrity that you could 
you know, go to Scripture and verse, that you could quote, that you would know the gospel and to be able to refute why that is not true. And of course, with grace, I mean, we're not a bunch of brutes. We don't have billy clubs and crowbars and, you know, you're coming in our, you know, we don't do all that. But we're with grace, with compassion, but with firmness. As, hey, this is the truth. And we, we don't compromise the truth. And it's not a bargaining trip. trip. Uh, uh, it's not a bargaining tip, you know. So we don't, we don't sit here, well, I'm going to tell you the truth. And, you know, I get guys sometimes I counsel and they, they come in. And my kids do this sometimes. You know, they, it's like, well, I'm going to be honest with you. Like, honesty is like a bargaining chip, you know. <laughs> like, well, I'm going to be honest with you. And I'm like, no, no, we're, we're just honest. It's not like, you know, hey, we're going to swap honesty here. You know, we're just honest people. Just tell me like it is. And I'm going to tell you like it is. That's how it is. We just need to have this kind of resolve in us. That's what I'm saying. It matters. Because they didn't, and they paid the price. And they had to have somebody else come back and give him a kick in the rear and say, stand up for the God you serve and the truth that he's about. Contend for the gospel. Contend. And this was his purpose. To both appeal to them to contend and engage earnestly. Both defending the purity of the faith and denouncing godlessness. Simply put, it was a call to action. And if you walk away, or if you got a highlight or a pen, you want to just highlight that one verse since I gave it to you there. It is a call to action. This entire epistle, uh, epistle is not for um, it is not for you and I to just you know sit on it. It's not just for us to um, its readers just to kind of hang out and kind of learn some new facts and quips and quotes and some things that we can. It is for us to be motivated to live earnestly for the gospel. And can I just can I just throw out this on that note? Are you living earnestly for the gospel? You know, too many times we, we, we as uh, members, um, we, we just, I don't know, we, we sometimes I, I, I know in circles and, and different things, it's like folks depend on everybody else to spoon feed them. They depend on everybody else to do everything. And yet we find here that's not the case at all. He's saying, rise up. Rise up and contend. And that may mean service. That may mean being disciplined uh, and study. That may mean getting together and, and, you know, in fellowship. That may mean a whole host of things. But it is a call to action. It's not a call to, to be entertained. Amen? <laughs> I just thought I'd throw that out there. Y'all were getting kind of serious looking. It's like, oh, my gosh. He's way too close. He needs to be on the stage. All right. So the theme. Um, what we have here is we have um, Paul, uh, excuse me, not Paul, uh, Jude's purpose, but now we see Jude's theme. Jude's theme is, and, and his purpose really supplies us with, with the themes of judgment and denouncing error. Now you could say a bunch of different things because it's, it's short enough where you could kind of pick out several. The longer it is, the more trends you see, but uh, but this really is um, this really is the themes. Uh, it is judgment and denouncing error. And 
as we look at this, a couple other things to note about Jude. He gives us many word pictures. Um, it gives us many uh, word pictures of dangerous predators that are among that are among them. As he pr- blow this up, some my eyes aren't what they used to be. Um, gives us many word pictures of predators that are among them as he prompts them in remembering God's judgment and the apostles' teaching. He also stresses his point by the multiple uses of the word ungodly. Let me let me just kind of focus in on that real quick. Go to Jude uh, four. I just want to I want to point this out. Uh, Jude 4, certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who long beforehand were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only and, and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15. Jump to verse 15. And actually I'll begin in verse uh, verse 14. He says, and about these also Enoch in the, seventh, uh, in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on them all and to convict all the ungodly with all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in ungodly ways, and the sin, excuse me, and all of the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoke against them. I mean, and then, of course, he says it again. He talks about the ungodly lust in verse 18. He is using this word uh, repeatedly, over and over and over and over again, and he's communicating something there. He's communicating that this is, this is what he's against. This is, this is, we're trying to combat this. And you and I, we are not to be ungodly, but instead, we're to, we're to be godly. There needs to be a godliness that runs through the fabric of who we are. That we are men and women and, and boys and girls who, who love and serve, who are united in not just these truths on an academic level, but in an everyday, man, just harmony of the gospel. And so... When we're at church, when we're outside of the church, when we're no matter what we're doing on the job or no matter what we're doing in our, in our families, that there is a godliness about us. And it affects and it bleeds into everything we are, all of our faculties. And so we see his theme. But then we look at his structure. And this is, uh, this is where... Um, this is where I, I, I find it very interesting. Jude's structure is extremely organized. He's a master communicator, particularly using a literary skill of triads. Now, this is a, a tactic of a threefold repetition. So when you look at the epistle of Jude, what I want to show to you in this epistle is that Jude is a master at going at this with a threefold repetition. He uses these triads. I just pointed. I just went through verse eleven on the handout. You can see, verse one. He says they're called, they're loved, and they're kept. Verse two. He says, uh, "May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you." Then he talks about verse four. Godless men. Uh, he says that change the grace of our Lord. Then they deny Jesus Christ. In verse five, he uses examples of. Egypt, angels, Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 8, 
He talks about defiling the flesh, rejecting authority, reviling angelic majesties. And then in verse 11, he uses the example of Cain, Balaam, and Corlam. This goes on and on and on and on throughout the whole epistle. He uses this threefold repetition to communicate over and over and over again. And sometimes he uses a threefold of five repetition. Uh, he talks and he adds five, but he does that three times. And the date, of course, um, is a little bit uh, in the air. Most scholars say it's um, as late as 80 A.D., um, but we know from the epistle it really, um, it really has a Second Peter flavor. Let me just ask you, how many of you have actually read Jude recently? Let's just say within the last year. Okay, so you probably read, okay, all right. Um, I, yeah, okay, prior to Sunday, no, <laughs> that's, not, that's not fair. Um, so we, you know, when you look at this little epistle and when you see it, um, there's a lot happening here. More than just reading it and glancing over it, there is a lot of happening within the structure. Jude is a master Jewish communicator. Um, so much so that it was problematic getting into the canon because it was almost too good. Does that make sense? It's like uh, somebody at their job and they submit work or, you know, you got a paper that was written or something and then you're like, mm, yeah, uh-huh. you know, like, oh, yeah. And that was kind of the, it was just, it's really, it is really good. But one thing was noticed is that it, it looked red and smelled awful lot like Second Peter. Now, if I ask you, who's read Second Peter recently? Oh, I thought many more hands would go up. Okay, interesting. <laughs> um, usually, many more hands go up. Oh, yeah, I'm familiar with Second Peter because most of us are. If asked about Jude, many people eh, ask about Second Peter. It's like, yeah, oh yeah, I get that. You know, a couple famous verses there, but God's patience and not willing that any should perish. I mean, just there's a lot of, a lot of, you know, lot happening in Second Jude. Uh, excuse me, Second Peter. <laughs> now that's it. You know, <laughs> rewriting the canon right here. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but we know Jude came later because he took a lot of this from that. Now I'm not saying he took took from it as much as he was very influenced by it. And we don't know exactly when, so I would say, and I would agree with most of the scholars, they say no, no, no later than 80. I would say probably between 70, maybe 60, uh, 69 and 75, somewhere. I would shorten that. So that's, that's kind of the, the time frame. We know it happened during the time of Nero. We know that it happened... Uh, during the time of the dispersa, um, that and after into 70 A.D. Um, actually, it, it may actually not be quite. It may have been 69. But what we have here is we have the replica of Second Peter, the influence of Second Peter into um, Jude. And and I really I don't I really would encourage you to read Jude. And then read Second Peter, and you'll see what I'm talking about here. There's a lot of I think I thought I put it in the footnotes. I don't know if I did. I 
I may have put the, the, the verses in the footnotes. But I just kind of want to throw that out there. We don't know exactly. Uh, we don't know exactly that there's, there's speculation. Um, I should end on that note. <laughs> That's the safest note to end on. However, what's interesting is that this epistle was not always accepted. In fact, it was part of uh, the disputed books for a long period. Now, who, who knows what bu- books are, are what we consider the disputed books? Well, without looking. <laughs> Do what now? Oh, okay. Well, I'm talking about the books that they called the disputed books that actually did make it into the canon. Okay. Hebrews is one of them. That's right. James is one of them. Uh, yeah, the Revelation of John. That's right. You threw me off of that for a minute. Second and third John. And I believe one more. Second, third John, Revelation, um, Jude, Hebrews, and and James. One more. Second Peter. Second Peter. And Second Peter uh, took a bad rap. You know, Second Peter and Jude, they looked a lot alike and they smelt a lot alike and you know, all that kind of stuff. So what I'm trying to communicate is here is that it wasn't always fully accepted. And it was uh, in that category of disputed books, and here's a few reasons why. Number one, it quotes from the Jewish Apocrypha writings, Apocrypha, excuse me, writings, um, actually using from the Assumption of Moses and the Apocalypse of Enoch. And so it quotes this. Um, so, would somebody like to read verse 9? I'm going to try to get a little class participation here. Anybody want to read verse 9? That's right. So that is from the Assumption of Moses, which is a Jewish writing. It is an extra-biblical writing that is not in part of the Old Testament canon nor our New Testament and yet it is quoted by Jude, and it is in our canon, and we know that if it's in our canon, I mean, we, we accept it as true, we accept it as real, we accept it as, um, you know, authentic. And here we have the story nowhere else in our scripture, because that's taken from somewhere else. How about verse uh, 14, when he says, he, he uh, quotes uh, Enoch, might want to read that? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So both of these are from extra-biblical writings. And that prophecy, you know, not in any way contradictory to, um, to any of the gospel or, or any, any of the historical events of the time, in fact, it's very spot on, but yet it doesn't come from, you know, our, our understanding of the Old Testament. It comes from the extra-biblical writings of the Apocalypse of the Enoch. Well, why is this? I'm talking to Brian, and Brian says, why is that? <laughs> I want to know. <laughs> um, a couple of different reasons I think that we should understand when we, when we look at this. Now, first off, 
I don't want to lose sight of the fact that what we're doing is we're explaining why this had such a huge struggle to make it into our canon, okay? So if you and I are looking at this like, now wait a minute, he's quoting an assumption of Moses? Yeah, well, our early church fathers struggled with that as well um, as they were considering maybe this should or should not be a part of the canon. Probably, I mean, for starters, it was an effective, very effective way to communicate um, using, um, excuse me, catering to his audience. He's have a Jewish audience, and he's trying to communicate these truths of judgment and denouncing error. He is ministering to them using their own vernacular, their own stories. He's using their own way of thinking. He's taking their culture, and he's applying it in all the right ways. He, and what he does is he takes well-known stories that would have been common knowledge to any of them, and he is promoting uh, promoting the gospel further. By using these, we see that it probably not only was well-known, but it was probably part of an oral tradition. For instance, we take, uh, um, we take verse 14, this, uh, this prophecy by Enoch. Well, even though it wasn't recorded in our scriptures, it was probably very known from, from family to family, what he prophesied, and perhaps even some particular prophecies. Um, I was in uh, uh, Universe Mobile, and uh, there was a tape that went around. And it was John Piper, and it was his, I can't remember the year, 2000, no, nine, oh, I can't remember the year. And it was his, his delivery that he preached um, there at, I believe, the Passion Conference. And that CD got copied and recopied and recopied. I wasn't there, never saw a manuscript, uh, didn't really even own a CD as my roommate did, and I heard that sermon so many times that I could quote it. It opens up, and you may hear me say this in a sermon because it's so good. <laughs> he opens up by saying, let your passion be single. And he continues and he unpacks that. And he just really, and I heard this sermon and I loved it. It was my bread and butter for just, I loved it. And I love for John Piper. Um, I mean, I couldn't tell you, I, I can even now tell you when he preached that sermon. I couldn't tell you anything about it. But my mind is, I'm, I'm locked in. And I know I'm not in error. I know what it says. I heard it a billion times. And if I taught my kids that, they could quote John Piper. And if they taught their kids that, they could quote John Piper and tell you very little about where it came from. Very, But the, you get the sense of this oral tradition. That's kind of how it was. They would sing songs. They would tell stories. And that would be passed on and passed on. And he picks up on that. And he says, hey, you know, and he, he pulls that out to, to make his point. So we see it was probably largely because it was the oral traditions that they were using, the prophecies that were, um, you know, prophecies that were, were told from long ago. And then the story about, um, out of the assumption of Moses, story about the, the uh, body of Moses being hotly, you know, I mean, uh, disputed over. Well, how much time do I got? So what we have here is, uh, what we have here is a story that's recited is it, is it true? Is it not true? Well, it's in our canon, so we, we accept it as true. But does that mean that everything in the assumption of Moses is wrong? 
And now everything in the assumption of Moses may be right, but not at all. We know that there's validity in that story simply because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's pulled into as we accept our canon as, as absolute truth. Where I'm going here is that, you know, I wouldn't be quick just to write off everything that's not in the canon as unworthy to be read, as unworthy to be studied, as unworthy just to, to, to be learned. I think there needs to be a great deal of caution, a great deal of wisdom, a great deal of uh, pastoral care. If you're really into something like, uh, like uh, the Gospel of Thomas, uh, I think you need to talk to your elder. I really do. I'm, I'm serious. If there are extra biblical writings that you find fascinating, you need to talk to your pastor or, or pastors. You need, to, you need to make sure that, that you're, you know, hey, you're, you're, you're not all over the map on the road here, but, you know, hey, we're, we're reading this through the lens of Scripture. Because remember, our Scripture, uh, we, we hold to sola, deo, um, um, sola Scriptura, which is what? Meaning it is the, it is the final it is the final authority. It doesn't mean that there aren't other authorities and that there aren't other truths. It just means that the Scripture is the final authority. And so we live and read and understand and learn everything through the lens of Scripture because Scripture is the final authority for all of life and faith. So I just want to kind of throw that out there. I don't know if that uh, helps in any. I use this when, um, when I talk about... Um, talk about uh, um, the scriptures and you know we talk about the scriptures being true and people say well you know well, uh, scripture is uh, uh, written by man you know it's written by men and it's it can be you know I mean I mean how can men who are fallible write something that's infallible um, I mean that's that's just that that's doesn't make sense I mean come on yogi <laughs> and um, so I, I'm quick I, I do this kind of exercise uh, Sometimes at Home of Grace, or sometimes. So I'm going to write here. Can I? I'm going to pretend like I'm Brian here. Uh, well, I was supposed to say, <laughs> I, he's going to pretend like he's me with the spelling. I'm really awful. Fourth, uh, March fourth of two thousand twenty. Okay. Now, a couple things about this statement. Me, an, an infallible man, just made and wrote a, a, a no, me, an infallible man, <laughs> sorry about that. I know some of y'all are like, whoa, <laughs> Brian, <laughs> sorry, no, I got tongue twister there, um, just wrote an infallible statement. 
this statement is absolutely true. Is it not? Think about it. Yogi Taylor is teaching at the Church of the Square um, on March 4th of 2020 and is wearing a blue shirt. I'm sure I am wearing a blue shirt. Okay. Well, don't get, no, come on easy now. So here's, here's the deal. This statement just came from a man full of error, and if you, as you get to know me, you'll, you'll agree. <laughs> um, but yet I just made a statement that is true. Now, if it's true right now, it's going to be true tomorrow. Am I right? Would it be true a year from now? You know where I'm going. Would it be true a hundred years from now? Would this statement still be true a hundred years from now? Okay, let's take one big jump and let's say a thousand years from now, this, this is on parchment buried beneath the earth and they uncover it and they read it and somebody says, I think that is a true statement. It is. It's still true a thousand years from now. It's true and it's historically true. I got dates. I got, you know, I, I, it's, uh, it's a personal truth. I've got, you know, here I am, Yogi Taylor. Uh, I've got a, a place of worship here, the church at the square. And what happens over time is that unfamiliar with all of this rhetoric, I feel like I'm getting off the subject here a little bit, but unfamiliar to all this rhetoric, what you've got is you've got people who wouldn't know, let's say a thousand years from now. Well, a thousand years from now, this guy Yogi Taylor, man, there was a Yogi, I think he played baseball. That's got to be that baseball player. And they hotly debate, is that that baseball player? And they sad to find out as a big fellow who's not really good at baseball, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So they debate this. He is, he's teaching. What kind of teaching is he doing? Is it, what, is this, what was their style of teaching? Did everybody stand and, you know, the teacher sat? Um, did they have an arena? Did he walk around teaching? And they debate, what is his teaching? And then they come over here, church at the square. They must have met at a square. Obviously, there was a square that, right in the middle of the city. I mean, this was in the church. <laughs> Do you see where I'm going with this? Do you see? Now, we love this, and we pick apart the script, but do you see for face value what this is? But face value, this is just simply Yogi's teaching at a church. He's wearing a blue shirt, and he's doing it on March 4, 2020. Well, that's how the scripture is written. And sometimes we, we really want to dig deep, and we want to kind of unpack, and we want to explore, and rightly so for, for much of this. But we need to understand that the scriptures were written for clear expl explanation. And sometimes we can pull in other things like Jude does. He pulls in other, other, uh, um, uh, yeah, other sources, and uh, he talks about the assumption of Moses and whatnot. And we understand that God is doing so much more here. And it doesn't take away from the validity of scripture. It actually adds to it that we see that there is a full knowledge and understanding of... Uh, i, I got to move on here. Sorry. Is that helpful at all? The next time somebody says, uh, well, you know, it was written by men, and we're like, yeah, read a lot of good stuff that's true and will be for a thousand years. <laughs> I mean, that's just... Uh, I want you to notice a couple other things. There's, in addition to the structure of the, of the book, it's actually very Hellenistic. And it just really overflows with elaborate concepts 
rare words that are only found here in Jude. In fact, 13 Greek words are found nowhere else in the New Testament, only here in this little epistle. Now, grant you, there's only 25 verses, but there's 13 words that aren't found anywhere else in Scripture. And these are elaborate concepts. Um, the Greek is really good. Um, however, this was problematic. Um, think about it. Jude had very little education, if any at all, other than memorizing the Torah and other than uh, that which he was, had influenced, but, but almost little to no formal education. He's from a dot on the map in Galilee, you know, not, not the hot place of the world. Here he is, you know, and yet we know just being from an obscure place and having very little education does not clearly define who we are or our abilities, does it? That's a no. You, a lot of y'all should say, no, it doesn't. <laughs> no, it doesn't. I mean, people, when I, when I say we live in Van Cleve, they go, where's that at? You know, <laughs> well, it's in Mississippi. Oh, well, you know, you know I mean, but that ha our, our region and, and our formal education, though it may be great, when it's not, it doesn't necessarily dictate or communicate that, uh, that we're any less than, and certainly was the case with Jude. Jude was brilliant, and he had a great communication, great communicative skills, um, <clears throat> but it was problematic. So, uh, the third thing is that it was also frowned upon uh, due because it's short, it's brevity. It, was, it took a hard stand against confronting error. Uh, and lastly, I've already mentioned this, but it correlates with uh, Second uh, Peter. And so the opponents say it's really just a shadow of Second Peter. Um, there's some striking parallels. Hold on. Yeah, Second Peter, I got it in um, footnote on 8. So I knew I put it somewhere. But they also have major differences, and that should be note, noted. But even though there's a lot of similarities, there's also a lot of differences. It is its own epistle. And none of this should disqualify Jude from being in our camp. None of this. I'm going to fast forward a little bit. Um, basically, it, it came to our canon. You can read about that since I printed it off. <laughs> you, can, you can read about that. But what we want to know is that at 395, um, it is in our canon, and we have the 27 books. This book fought its way um, for almost four centuries. Um, blood, sweat, and tears. Um, it was prayed and debated. Um, it was um, mulled over. It was put on the back burner, uh, the top shelf, the bottom shelf, every shelf. Um, and it kept coming back, and the Lord kept bringing it back bringing it back until finally what we have here in Jude is not um, some shadow of something else. It is what we have is we have an authentic copy here of the Word of God from Jude. Now, I don't mean the authentic like actual parchment. I mean we have the real, we have the, the inerrant Word that has been preserved for us 2,000 years later. And I hope that you would have a deep appreciation for the Bible that so many people have given their lives for. When you read this scriptures, when you when you were when you were when you were reading the the book of John or the book of Jude, when you're pouring over Philippians, when you're when you're in uh, all of these all of these 
Galatians. This this Bible has been preserved and has been um, cherished. It should be cherished. It has been preserved for us and it comes to us with a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. And none is true more than Jude. Jude has fought its way. Can we read this? Do we have time? Just sort of read through it real quick. And I've got you an outline here about the salutation and, and uh, all the way through to the doxology. But I'm, I'm, we're just going to read and hit some highlights here. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Okay? Something was happening, and there was a problem, and now he identifies the problem. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who long beforehand were marked out for this condemnation ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's put a comma there just real quick. What Jude is talking about, is that we understand, he's talking about Gnosticism. And just to cut to the point, um, there was, at this point, uh, there were Gnostic teachers that had infiltrated the, the church. It came in, and they're swaying the people back and forth, and they begin to unpack, um, and they begin to corrupt. And through through their teaching, the body and all that you do, and it's just evil, and it doesn't really all it is is that you are just be spiritual, and it's just all about your knowledge and your relationship, and what you do doesn't really matter. It's, per, it's pervasive even today. I, I would just say, I, I really it is. It's pervasive even right now. We have Gnostic thought that is just, it's corrupting not just our culture, but the church. And that's really who it's corrupting. I mean, the, the, the world is corrupt. But the church, the church is a center for, uh, of God's purity here. I mean, we're, we're, we come together and we exclaim the goodness of God, the greatness, the purity of God. Anyway, so this is, uh, this is what he says. He says, now I desire to remind you, verse 5. Though you know all things once and for all that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And so we have common salvation. We have uh, certain persons crepting unnoticed. And now we have uh, this reminder. And did you notice what he said? Um, oh, I hadn't got there yet. Sorry. And then verse 6, <laughs> um, he says, And the angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their own uh, abandoned their proper abode. He has kept an internal, uh, excuse me, kept in uh, eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, I'm really out of time here, but uh, just basically, you want to read. Uh, I believe this is a reference um, to Genesis six, and I believe this has uh, great amounts to do there. Um, wish I had time to unpack it. Uh, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibiting as example, and the undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. 
Verse 8. And in the same manner as these, men by, by dreaming defile flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but simply said, or, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these men, they revile the things which they do not understand. And the things to which they know by instinct, like unreasonable animals, unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. And then we have uh, verse 11. Woe to them, for they have, gone away, they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong in the air of Balaam. And they have perished in the rebellion of Korah. These men are those of hidden reefs in your love feasts. When they feast with you without fear, caring, uh, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam. Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. And about these also Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord has come with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon them all and to convict the ungodly of the ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and all the harsh things which the ungodly sinners have spoke against them. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of the gaining and advantage. And then at this point, the, the, the whole epistle, the, the tone changes. And he says, but you, beloved, I don't remember the words which were spoken beforehand in the apostles of the prophets of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last times there shall be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who, who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourself up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. I hope that you will love this epistle as all of Scripture and that we will study it fervently, contending for the faith. Let's close in prayer. And I, Father, I love you so much. I thank you for your great love. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, continue to fuel our passion for you. I fuel our love for your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would build us up in the most holy faith.
we would contend earnestly for the precious truth that you have given to us and entrusted us with. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. It's your blessed name we pray.